Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and you're very welcome to this week's podcast. Michael Collins signs the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And less than one year later, the ambush and the death of Michael Collins at Bailinablaw. The historical vices you're about to hear are part of a large archive held by Irish Life and Lore, an organisation dedicated to the collecting and archiving of oral history. So, to this week's podcast. On October 1921, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith headed an Irish delegation to London to meet Lloyd George to negotiate the signing of a treaty. Michael Collins' Powell, the grandnephew of Michael Collins, tells us here the reason why this had to happen. The IRA, to a great extent, at that time were on their knees. They, they were... Oh, the forces, the British forces, were overwhelming. They, 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 there was no way they could stand up to them, and he knew that because there were, there were some of them, they were in prison, they were uh, dead, and some a lot of the main people were dead, and so on. And and one way he was. He, he 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 was very lucky. Ireland was very lucky to have to be able to negotiate at all, and the fact that they were able to get the conditions under the, that they did get under the treaty was, in a certain to a certain extent, a miracle. Uh, and it took hard negotiation. And I think that Michael Collins knew the British mind and the fact that he was uh, over in. He had spent some of his time in. In the uh, in London, helped him to understand the British people, and uh, I think that he had that advantage over anybody else. Now he di- he didn't get what he hoped we would get, and everyone hoped that we'd have t- totally united Ireland. But I think it was important to emphasise that he believed that what he was getting was freedom to achieve freedom. Uh, it was a stepping stone, as the word that has often been used, but it was a stepping stone to freedom, as much freedom as we could. There was no way that the people in the north of Ireland, uh, the unionist population, were in any way going to come into uh, a united uh, 32-county republic. That it was not on, and he knew it was on, not on because he also knew that if... That if if that came about, there would be a revolution in the north of Ireland, and there is no way that uh, Britain were going to allow that. 
Harry Boland, the nephew of Harry Boland. They never expected to get independence. If they if they had got home rule or something like that, that 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 was the height of their ambition. And that that's why when when this was was offered to them, it was more than they ever thought they would get absolute freedom for twenty six counties. And he goes on to talk about Michael Collins's love life and how it had an effect on how negotiations were going in London. I mean, I have the letters that he wrote to Kitty Hernan. Uh, you know, and they were love letters. I, f- I, f- I felt embarrassed reading them. And he was asking her to come to America with him, that he was going off and all the rest. But, and then the, at the end, when, when, when she made her decision, he, 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 he accepted it. That he, that she was going to go with, with Michael Collins and that, but the, but that was it. But, but, but when he, but when he came back, he said to Michael, Collins, "I couldn't believe that you that you you you, you, you threw all your all your your oats and all the rest of it to, to the wind." And of course, the reason was that in the treaty debate, in the the treaty negotiations, he was still against signing it until Lady Lavery. And Lady uh, Maya Llewellyn Davis came in, and they were special ladies that Lloyd George had to talk people around for whatever reason. And they took Michael Collins out with them. Up to that, he was absolutely against signing. When he came back in again, he was prepared to sign. And what do you think changed his mind? I've not the slightest doubt about it, but they told them they were going to do the same as they did on Parnell. They were going to show that he had an illegitimate son with Maya Llewellyn Davis. Historian and writer Mida Ryan. No talk about whether he had affairs or whether he hadn't. It doesn't seem, I researched it in depth and it doesn't seem as if he had, but it's certainly she was involved in intelligence with him. And um, I have uh, uncovered um, material that she was involved and she was fascinated by him. And um, this um, letters and things like that, and again, she helped him, particularly during the uh, treaty negotiations and afterwards, um, uh, during that period, she was involved. There's another woman, and she's really fascinating. She's Maya Llewellyn Davies. Um, Maya Llewellyn, uh, she was um, had a house, um, uh, Furry Park, uh, and it was a house that stood on its own grounds. Um, she was married to um, Crompton Llewellyn Davies and he was solicitor to Lloyd George. So she had a lot of inside information. And uh, he got involved with her and she she was uh, a tremendous help in uh, getting information for him. She was also involved with uh, Leslie Price, who uh, later married Tom Barry, and she was involved in the organisation of Common Amon, and they were involved a lot in gun running. So, um, the, the, I mean, her story, there's so many stories attached. I mean, I'm just skimming, skimming the surface now, yeah. now. Eamon Bry joined the Dublin Metropolitan Police, and during the War of Independence, he was a spy for Michael Collins and acted as his bodyguard in London while the treaty negotiations were going on. His daughter, Anya, 
spoke about that time. He was his bodyguard, and uh, he used to. They used to go to mass together in Brompton Oratory in London every morning at eight o'clock. Michael used to go all through the treaty negotiations. They say nasty things about Michael. What was going on in London? Now I don't know. I wasn't there. But uh, he did go to Mass with my father every morning, either in Brompton Oratory, and there was another church near it in Cadogan Gardens. You know, the treaty delegates all stayed there. Some had stayed in Hans Place and some had stayed in Cadogan. And my father was in the room behind, above Michael, keeping an eye on him, you know. They were all together in London, which Sean McBride was there as well. Now, was your father asked at any stage for his advice or his... Uh would he have been asked any questions? I wonder. Does oh, I, I doubt it. He was there, and Michael got him out. He was um, he was caught giving the information. You see, in the DMP, he was caught. Uh, there was a a lady, a fan of Michael Collins, who had been either a secretary or something over the years, and in Dawson Street, she kept all the papers that my father had been giving out from uh, Brunswick Street, from the DMP headquarters to Michael through the volunteers. She kept them all in her flat, and it was raided. She was arrested and my father was arrested later on and brought to Arbor Hill. He was in Arbor Hill military prison for four months or something. And I'm sure... Then when he got out, when the truce came, only for the truce, I wouldn't be here now. When the truce came, they released him and um, Michael chose him to go to London with him at the negotiations to act as his bodyguard with, with Emmett Dalton and a few others as well. And, and uh, at that time, it, it was a worrying time, I'm sure, for him uh, being, um, you know... He yeah, when, would, I thought, when you think of it now, he was a DMP man who'd been caught spying. Yes. And was going to London with Michael in the delegation. You know, when you think it's a bit crazy, isn't it? Yes. You know, yeah. All of them were, of course, you know, but... Yeah, but... And, him and particularly, because he'd been in the DMP, he was in the service, yeah. But this, this was a vitally important time, uh, because, mm. you know, what, what was happening... Uh, for the first time the they'd first really time. met in about 800 years trying to negotiate between them. I mean, they were actually face-to-face across the table. Uh, the, the, the tension, the pressure, the, uh, the... And would they get out of London alive, you yes. see? They even had this plane that they got in Croydon, you know, the plane called the Big Fellow. You know, Michael was one of his nicknames, was the Big Fellow. They had this plane arranged in Croydon so that they, could, if things went wrong, they could get out there and the fly... The uh, One of the... One of the men in the group that were with him where it was a pilot, and he was Russell, George, George, Russell was his name, and he was a pilot. So he went out and sussed out a plane down in Croydon, which isn't very far from London. How they get from London to Croydon, I don't know. And they had it lined up there so that if things went wrong, they could get there. That was an escape? Yeah, to Ireland. I mean, we're talking about 1921 when the flying wasn't great. I mean, they, they were only start, Ireland was only starting, but these guys had served in the British Army, Yeah, which is where they got it only for the British Army I don't think the whole thing would have come off because they had got training in it in everything all of them Emmett Dalton all those they were all in the British Army first mm. you know so they got that got fantastic training Colonel Jack O'Farrell was a member of the negotiating team in London and here his daughter Breda spoke about the moment that Michael Collins signed the treaty he was in in the in the in, in the group that went to London to sign the treaty. He was with Michael Collins, and he was sitting behind him. Whether it was the House of Commons or whichever, I don't know which House of Lords. I'm not sure that it was signed. And my father told me it was on his deathbed. Actually, he was telling me this because you know when you're young, you don't hear the stories. And um, then he told me that uh, Michael Collins 
stood up and he said, I was to his right behind him in Adias, and he said, the ink, and in those days it was ink, he said, it was not dry on the paper, the signature. So he was that near to him. And he said, now Jack, obviously he was a good pal of his, you know, mm-hmm. and he said, now Jack, remember this, your children and their children and their children's children, you will never see peace in Ireland. And, you know, it struck me so... I used to... When we, we got the peace and this happened and that, you know, I'd say, oh, this and that. Now, he was actually wrong. In my own mind, you know, but still it breaks out again and again and things are not very settled. And returning again to Anya Bry. This is just a bit from Michael Noyce's witness statements. Shortly after the truce, there was a great gathering in Vaughan's Hotel in Parnell Square... Of all the men who were around Mick Collins, it was a farewell party given for Harry Boland, who was going to America. Apart from Michael Collins and Harry Boland, there was also present Garrod O'Sullivan, Dermot O'Hegarty, Liam Mellows, Liam Tobin, Rory O'Connor, Frank Thornton, Colonel Broy, my father, the late Detective Sergeant McNamara, who was the other DMP man who was working for Mick Collins, Sean Etchingham of Wexford and many others. It was a joyous occasion and Michael Collins recited Kelly Burke and Shea, which is a poem he always recited, and Liam Mellows sang Macdonald of the Glens, an old Scottish song. Little did we know that night that night of the events that were in store before another year had passed. That was 1921. It is well for mortal men that he cannot see into the future, because within a year they were all... Michael was killed. Griffith was dead. Harry Boland. Yeah. yeah. Harry and him were great friends. You know, it was so sad. Yeah. It was just a nice little, you know, 1921 before all the 1922 happened and everyone was killed and everything, you know. And now we turn our attention to Bailinablo in West Cork, where on the 22nd of August 1922, an ambush was set up by the local IRA. And during that ambush, shots were fired on the Free State Army, killing Michael Collins. I spoke to Michael Donovan, a native of Clonakilty, who explained how the place at that time was steeped in republicanism. married a free state, as we would say, soldier at the time. And I could, no, nothing was said. I always realised that it wasn't a popular thing to do. So I suppose that, uh, I would think that the main people were, uh, were Republican in, in attitude. Mm. In that, and behind the scenes also, that the free state government was in some way connected with England. And it took a long number of years to erase that, that that, that, uh, the IRA, where the the patriots, where the the, uh, free staters weren't of the same type at all. I think that that was the feeling of the people of the time, of the people that I knew. Historian Ryle Dewar. Well, I think part of the element was that the Republicans in that part of West Cork resented Collins coming in there as... You know, he was coming in and travelling around like he had nothing to fear. And there was an element that Collins believed that they wouldn't shoot him in his own home area anyway. And he travelled about West Cork. He moved through Bail early in the morning and the word 
got out that Collins had passed through. And it's ironic that of all the places Eamon de Valera happened to be that morning was Bailin' the Blow, that de Valera was told that Collins had passed through and de Valera knew that an ambush was planned. He moved on and he had nothing to do with the ambush, whatever. And at that meeting the night before the ambush was Liam DC. And here is his nephew called after him. And they had a very big disagreement the night before Bill the Blah in Sweeney's house and they had a meeting that night. Liam Lynch wrote to Liam DC and said Dev was coming down to meet he he came to me, he said and I didn't dis- I didn't agree with him and what we had discussed on previous occasions and now he's going to meet you but you tell him and have nothing to do with him, you know. Now I'm not too sure what that was about, but I know for a fact Joe, you know this as well, right? That they met that night in Sweeney's in Grand York. As a matter of fact, there's a room up there that's called a Dib's bedroom. Dib stepped there the night before as well, you know. Now, they had a meeting. There was, um... Liam D.C. Dib, and there was two others. Um, that meeting broke up in disorder anyway. Yeah, I see. So, yeah, and, and that was the night before... That was the night before, before Bill, Bill the Bill. And that is a fact. And here is Michael Collins' poll. Uh, he said himself that he uh, he could not see how any Cork, anybody in his yeah. own country could uh, ambush him and shoot him. And I think that he probably had ideas to end the civil war and to meet the leaders of the... Uh, anti-treaty forces and try and work out some solution uh, to the civil war at the time. Historian Mida Ryan. Collins was commander-in-chief at the time. He was an important figure and we have to remember also that it was a war, a civil war and while he uh, or uh, was previously their friend uh, he was now fighting uh, as an enemy and that's the way life was none of them liked it because they knew him and so on and it was very but you know they didn't think they don't think you don't think about that when war is war and all of them as it were you f- they fight to kill that's war local historian jim crowley describes here michael collins's movements with the free state army convoy around west cork the morning of the ambush on the evening of August the 21st, uh, he uh, came into Cork and he stayed, as it turned out for the last time, he slept in the Imperial Hotel in the Grand Parade in Cork. And on the morning of August the 22nd then, he uh, left the Imperial Hotel at around 6 o'clock in the morning with, with a military convoy or in a military convoy. Now even the, the military convoy itself is interesting. Uh, he had at least four vehicles in the convoy, possibly five. There was an army motorcycle scout in the front, uh, on a motorbike obviously. There was a Crosley tender then with up to 11 uh, Irish uh, 
um, soldiers on, on board that. that. That was a troop lorry, an open troop lorry. Then there was Michael Collins's famous car, which was the Leyland 8, a very famous car. Um, there was two uh, drivers in the front who took it in turns, and there was Emmett Dalton sitting in the back seat with Michael Collins. Then uh, at the back of the convoy, there was uh, a Rolls-Royce Whippet armoured car. Now, they, the convoy travelled to McCroom that morning, where Michael Collins met some of his officers, uh, new uh, Irish Army officers, and then he moved, uh, they travelled from there, they wanted to go into Bendon. Now, normally you take the main McCroom-Bendon road to get into Bendon from McCroom, but uh, that road had been blocked, uh, there was bridges blown on it, there was trees knocked across it, and there was trenches uh, dug uh, blocking the road as well. So they were forced to take un- an unusual route from McCroom to uh, Bendon, which took them through this little place called Bale the Blah. Now what Bale the Blah is basically even today is just the five crossroads and there's a pub there today and a filling station. Back then there was just the pub. Uh, the pub today is called the Diamond Bar. Back then it was called Long's Public House. And the convoy travelled from McCroon, McCroom via Kilmurray along this road over this humpback bridge in front of us uh, up to the pub at Bale Blah. Now they weren't sure about the road to Bendon so uh, the story goes that they asked the man who was standing at the pub door at Bale Blah for directions as to how they could get to Bendon. He told them turn to the right and head on towards the uh, Bendon that way. Now the convoy moved off and Michael Collins went on his tour of inspection around West Cork uh, for the day. Meanwhile what the convoy didn't realise was that uh, there were people having meetings meetings in the area, some anti-treaty IRA and even some of the leaders uh, of the, the anti-treaty side were in the area, area of Bale purely as a coincidence, including Eamon de Valera. Uh, Eamon de Valera had his, his midday meal or his dinner that day uh, within a couple of hundred yards of the pub at Bale So there's a chance that uh, Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera passed within a very short distance of each other that day purely as a coincidence without each other knowing that the other was so close by. Now, the anti-treaty men in the area of Bernabal that day reckoned that because all the other roads were blocked, that there was a good chance that the convoy, Michael Collins' convoy, would have to come back the same route again in the evening. So they went about a half mile up along the Bendon Road from the pub at Bernabal uh, to where there's a, a, a ravine, if you like, cut in the hills, and they decided to set up an ambush uh, for the return journey of the convoy. Historian Mida Ryan explains... What happened during the ambush? Tom Keller said they, they're coming, wish they're coming, and he fired a shot, a warning shot in the air himself and Jim Hurley. They fired the first warning shots over there in that, that area there, <clears throat> at that side of the Horseshoe Boreen. When the warning shots were fired, uh, Tom Hales made his escape. He went down the road and he jumped over the ditch. Um, the, these were the warning shots. Uh, Carney, um, Sullivan and um, John O'Callaghan, uh, they were here in this part of the road and they made a run for it and their nearest escape was over that bridge, Harlaric Bridge. And they were, each of them were armed. And um, they ran over the bridge 
they took up positions just at that corner, just over the bridge along there. And when Michael Collins, as I said, he said, stand and fight, they got out in the yard, the cars were along here. They took up positions again on this, which was a, a low ditch. I don't know if it, it hasn't gotten any higher. It, it still was quite low. And they took um, up positions there. They took positions behind uh, the um, the Crosley, uh, the tender. And um, when the ambush started it, it was difficult for the, the men, the three, there were only three there now, uh, we have to remember, taking them on in direct, in, they were in the direct line of fire, the three men up there um, the um, armoured car uh, moved back along the road to get a different field of fire, when Michael Collins got out he took um, shelter as it were, or a position or beside the armoured car and uh, he, uh, you see, we have to remember that Michael Collins was an intelligent, he was involved in intelligence, he was involved in negotiations, he was um, a brilliant uh, strategician, he wasn't really a military man as such. In other words, he hadn't do- had uh, done much military work since he had uh, participated in the 1916 Rising. So therefore he was unfamiliar with this. Emmett Dalton and the men who were with him were familiar with the territory, with the they weren't all familiar with the territory but they were familiar with ambush uh, positions, ambush tactics and so on and they knew what they were facing and they were very careful that they would um, have uh, good positions uh, Liam DC and Pete Carney were travelling along the road um, Bill Paul, there were several of the men Pat Buttermer um, uh, I, I can say most of those I met and spoke to, they came back here, I brought them back several times to um, visit the area and they were able to tell me where they were and what they did. Some of them, sometimes they came alone, sometimes I brought them back again with each other, uh, depending on how much I need to clarify it. Uh, and uh, Pete Carney and um, Liam DC went up to the northeast. They were actually walking down towards the pub when they heard the noise and the, sh- the shooting in the distance. And Liam DC said um, they wanted he wanted to draw the fire of the amb. He knew his men were in trouble because he he knew that they had scattered. He had called off the ambush, and he said he imp- emptied himself and Pete Carney emptied a pen of ammunition into the bushes. They both had Thompson guns, submachine guns, and they drew the fire of Collins's convoy. While um, Mike, all the others, Emmett Dalton and uh, the men with him, Sean O'Connor, they all took up positions and they were very careful to be shielded, as it were. Whereas Michael Collins then, when he heard uh, the... uh, It does, it seems so, and this is what Emmett Dalton has said, who came back with me as well here, uh, what he has said, uh, he felt that there was, uh, he didn't know until I spoke to him after, I was the first person that he uh, spoke to and told the story, and when he came back, he said, I always had the feeling, he said, that there was gunfire coming from somewhere in that area. Now, at the So moment, this is to the right of us here. This is to the right of us, say, coming from Bend, and now if we look up, now there are green fields and everything now, because it has been reclaimed. That was all furs, and it was, you can see a little bit of fur 
towards there, but it was very um, forest bushes, and it, it certainly wasn't like it is today. This rent clear, you know. And it, it, it's got a, it's high up off the ground. It as is well. high up off the ground. So um, uh, Liam DC was up there in that area, and Pete Carney, and they were firing into the bushes, and um, this drew the fire. Now, uh, as I said. Emmett Dalton was aware there was fire coming from the back and this is difficult for um, soldiers here they are and they are they felt jammed but yet um, he you know he held his place and so did all the others Michael Collins got out on the road and what he did was he walked uh, out the road because at the time Carney and the men there were terrified because they knew they had only the few themselves. Now, going up that lane towards Foley's, uh, two men, Dinny Bryan and Sonny, uh, Sonny Neil, uh, Sonny O'Neill, he's known as, he was known as Sonny Neil. He was going up towards Foley's and um, they were walking, the two of them. Dinny Bryan uh, fired a shot into the air uh, Sonny O'Neill jumped inside the ditch and he ran down inside the ditch and he was there uh, shooting, you know, helping out his uh, companions. Dinny Bryan was uh, coming down as well, but he, you know, they, they, so that's all of them that were really taking on the main part of the convoy. It is so small, uh, you know, it was unbelievable. But anyhow, what happened then was um, Michael Collins um, got out uh, he moved out on the road and when he moved he walked down a part of the road and he st- turned with his back now the men we have to remember were um, I would say uh, I, I say I'm walking down from Bandon on my left just back there over the bridge uh, Michael Collins stood out on the road and he turned around and he said cut them off on the right he was giving orders to the convoy. So he had turned around and uh, Sonny Neil, who was a crack shot, could see him. He stood out in the open. He was out on the road. And it's if you want to go to the... Uh, we'll move further where it happened. Just here, the reason I know uh, the um, spot is uh, the the nearest... Uh, it just uh, the, where the river is nearest to the road. Just here and around this area. So the structure of the road hasn't changed much, except it has been widened, widened. of course. Yes, yes. That, that, that is more or less it. Now, the reason we know where uh, where he was... Now, he was shot around somewhere in this part of the road, let's put it that way. Um, you know, just to tell you uh, this area. When he, um, when he fell... He uh, got hit, as I said, in the back of the head because he, he was uh, turned. He had turned around, and um, Sonny Neil just there, there's not a, you can see now because there's not a direct line. But if you can just if we can stand out there, you can see right up, and there is a direct line of fire where he had a so he a, had a good, a, a good view. He stood inside at the pillar, just inside in that ear, so he had a good view. Uh, and he was the only man that he, he uh, the man he knew he shot him. Uh, when um, uh, when he fell, uh, he um, uh, he thought Emmett Dalton was somewhere along that area there, on, on the, and he said he thought he heard a faint cry of Emmett. 
uh, Sean O'Connell was close by as well. And now they were all well covered because they, they had the little ditch, at least I, I don't know how well, but they, they knew how to uh, shield themselves. And uh, they ran towards him and he said the, the CNC is hit, uh, uh, Dalton did. They uh, beckoned to the armoured car which had moved back there. Uh, the uh, touring cars and everything was there and, and uh, Emmett Dalton beckoned to the car to come forward. The armoured car, uh, they put him, they dra- he, they, as it were, put him across and they lifted him in. And when they were lifting him in, they used the doors of the armoured car to shield him. And when they were lifting him, his head, he had the cap on. When he, when he, he had the cap on and he got hit in the, the back of the pole, as I said. Now, it was a large gaping wound. When uh, they were lifting him in, they lifted his legs, and whatever way he got tilted, the cap fell off. It remained here on the dike of the road, and also his um, gun, when he, they were, whatever way they tilted him, uh, you have to remember as well, the, the um, uh, Republicans were firing and kept firing. At, you know, as much as they could, they just kept kept up the guard. They were hoping. Then they decided they, they were anxious that they were hoping they'd move off because they knew there were only a few of them there. Uh, Sean um, O'Connell had said the act of contrition into his ear, and when um, uh, when Lieutenant Smith was putting him in, he got a graze in the neck again. Um, Sonny Neal, who was uh, apparently they said he was a crack shot. He was very, you know, he was direct, and he just got the shot, and he grazed his neck here when he was uh, put him in. No, it wasn't. It was a nasty. Uh, apparently, according to Emmett Dalton, was a nasty uh, cut. All right, but it didn't penetrate or anything, uh, and it. Uh, uh, anyhow, uh, the the cap remained there, and the the gun. Uh, on the side of the road, the uh, convoy um, uh, with the door swinging open, they decided they'd better get get out of here. In the aftermath of Belnablaw, a lot of controversy arose about who shot Michael Collins. Local man Michael Donovan. When I was going to primary school, I would have been as was eight, uh, seven or eight, and was. Who was McPeak? I had no idea who McPeak was, but now he was the driver of the armoured car that, that uh, accompanied Michael Collins on the day he was shot. So the feeling must be around this area that was McPeak uh, did it. Uh, there is no evidence that he did. As a matter of fact, it should be more, more than likely that he didn't. And here, Emmett Dalton's niece, Carl Mullen. When... Uh, Michael Collins was shot in Bailey-Nablaw and, and the, the, uh, the controversy that spread afterwards sure. ab- about that killing. People do say that uh, it, it, it might have been Emmett who actually shot Michael I Collins. S- I read that. I read a, cook, a book uh, um, saying that. But I think in, um, there's a very good recent documentary on the shooting of Michael Collins and I think that there is a man who has confessed to the, the shooting and has indeed apologised to one of the Collins family and has been forgiven. He was only a young man. Um, and I saw that and I thought that was quite powerful. 
but that was said and Emmett had to live with that for a long time so how did the family accept that? Well they were at this stage living in England so um, I think they just at this stage it was just part of the debris that came you know he was I would probably numbed by the death and uh, I mean it has been said and I don't know that uh, they had been calling into a lot of houses having a good few drinks and that Michael Collins's judgment was totally um, mm. you know and, and you know in hindsight you would have to think there's a, there must be a, a, a vestige of truth in that you know that he, he probably felt very safe in his own county and also just meeting all his family and friends yeah and, and so a lot of people would say who killed Michael Collins? I mean, we, we, I'm sure you're, you're probably yes. sick of hearing that. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. But yeah. can you tell me, why wasn't Oliver Sinjin Gorgerty's report on, on the, the autopsy report on Michael Collins, why was that never published? I don't know. I really don't know why. I mean, it's extraordinary that it wasn't, but why it wasn't, I don't know. None of, of, of Michael Collins's documents survived uh, no they, know, they, they, it's, they, they vanished they yes vanished indeed they vanished time. indeed yes uh, why again it was was it a case of writing them out of history writing him out of history yeah. and getting rid of his name and that and um, uh, I suppose uh, this was it wasn't really until uh, Liam Neeson, then the film with Liam Neeson, uh, that Michael Collins came into the into the limelight again. I mean, he was written out of he was written out of history in my life. Uh, he was written out of history, and very few people knew anything about Michael Collins. Michael Collins had no interest in himself. Or his family, in the sense of looking after him in any way whatsoever, his sole interest was the Irish people. He was interested in the in the people that he knew in Clonakilty and so on, and what they wanted and what would be good for them, because he could see the poverty that most of these people lived in, and he wanted to change that. He could see the poverty in Dublin. He could see uh, uh, the, he could see the farmers. He was a farmer's son. He could see the farmers uh, getting a raw deal and uh, not being able to uh, to have a proper standard of living. And he was only interested that they would get their freedom and get away from Britain, who were using them. And finally, we hear historian Ryle Dewar. Well, I think to an extent it drove uh, some of his uh, supporters berserk almost, you know, and there were outrages committed subsequent to the death of Collins that were worse than anything that the Black Intense did. These are outrages committed by the Free State Forces, and you will find that if you look at Bally Seedy, you will find that there's a certain connection with Michael Collins's people, Paddy O'Daly, who was one of the main people in Michael Collins' squad, was the general in charge of Kerry. David Nelligan, who was the colonel who was in charge of Ballymullen Barracks, who actually selected the people to be killed at Bally CD. He was Michael Collins' spy in the castle. Uh, they were retaliating for the previous day, two members of the squad had been killed in Knocknagoshal. 
and this was these were very very close knit band that you know that had been through enormous an enormous amount together, and they idolized Collins, and that he had been killed, and then there was this thing they they used to say about Kerry that uh, nothing really happened in Kerry in the War of Independence. Now this was nonsense. They didn't know what was happening in Kerry because they were in Dublin. But an awful lot happened in Kerry, but the myth was allowed to grow up. And I think subsequent to the Civil War, what happened was the people who were most involved were so turned off by what happened, the brutality in which people who had been the closest of friends became the bitterest of enemies. And they made many of them never talked again. Others didn't talk for 40 or 50 years. But what they didn't do either was they stopped, the people who were most active stopped talking about it because they were just so turned off by it. And as a result, this myth grew up that really nothing happened in Kerry. And an awful lot did. And it's kind of, you find that Collins symbolised the waste that the people, I, I know one man told me that his memory of the news that Michael Collins had died, that he was from Kilflin, and he said his memory was that the, one of the farmhands came into the house and he was delighted, Michael Collins is dead. And he said his mother gave him a slap up across the face and ordered him out. And He was only a, a very young child at the time. He was horrified. He never saw his mother hit anyone. You know, he's one of the farmhands. But she was just indignant that anyone could rejoice at the death of like somebody like Michael Collins when he had done so much. And you find that even, I think it's Tom Barry says that in Mount Joy when the word came round that they all started saying the rosary. You know, they, there was there was very little gratification and certainly none from the people who knew Collins. And even Austin Stack, who was a bitter critic of Collins, wrote right afterwards that he did more for the movement than anybody. Well, we've come to the end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the excerpts taken from interviews, all of which are available on our website, that is www.irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to your company again next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.